life isn't easy, obviously, but if you work hard at something, it, it might be possible to change stuff, you know. And even if you're a student, you know, and you want to change a policy at the university, and you feel that it's it's such it's such a behemoth of an organization, how can I navigate this? How can I do this? It's too bureaucratic. It is possible. You just gotta keep chipping away. We live in this world. We gotta do some stuff. That's it. Like I don't, I'm not that kind of philosophical person. That's like, I, you know, what gets me up is helping refugees. Like. It's, it's not, <laughs> what gets me up is getting me getting up. Um, it, it's me just wanting to, to, to do what I can as, as I'm here. Like. You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. Today I'm speaking with Tola Akindipe, a passionate advocate for refugee rights and equal representation in the nonprofit sector. In addition to being the creative force behind Refugees Welcome Portugal, Tola has also led a successful campaign at the University of Essex to offer scholarships to refugee students and played a part in advocacy efforts to make Colchester a city of sanctuary. Tola has multiple talents and has successfully applied these in a variety of sectors, working with nonprofits, private companies, and public institutions. Opportunity to opportunity, job to job, Tola has always followed his North Star, his cause. For me, the cause is is just ensuring that people have opportunity, you know, and there is like proper representation, you know. So, for example, right now I'm in Brussels attending an EU meeting on uh, refugee stuff. And before the event, I went to the moderator and I said, you know, before the event, could you ask like how many people here are either refugees or have been refugees? And I wanted that question asked because there is a lack of representation at these events anyway. Uh, it's always been like that. Um, but I know that. But I wanted it to be such a way that people can see it. And you know, lo and behold, out of 250 people, about two were refugees, which is an improvement. Last year, it was one. <laughs> so I guess it's just, as I said, uh, opportunity, making sure that refugees, for example, who, who come here have the opportunity to be what they want like to be. If they want to study, if they want to get a job, if they want to create a business, that the opportunity is afforded to them. And if there are opportunities that they know about these opportunities. Um, and I guess like there's a personal experience there because, you know, I've lived in three different countries in Europe. And so moving to another country is not easy. Integrating into another country is not easy. And, you know, there is this idea of collectivism, um, especially if you're a non-white person. The idea being that, you know, you speak for the rest of your people, if you will. Um, I, if one refugee can't integrate, that means all refugees can't integrate. Uh, and I always say, look, there are, you know, Europeans you'll find who are in other European countries who have not integrated. I live in Portugal. I speak to so many British people in Portugal who have been there for 20 years and don't speak a word of Portuguese. In fact, the, the south of Portugal, which is called the Algarve, um, the, the Portuguese call it a British colony because there are so many British people there and like nobody speaks Portuguese. And, and that's that's considered completely normal. And no one no one bats an island, right? But if, a, if, you, if you met a refugee, for example, who were in a similar situation, it would be considered like sacrilege. You know, how dare you? here and not speak the language anyway so so my point is like refugees have the opportunity to be what they want to be and also there should be proper representation at all levels not just sort of representation where i mean i'll give you a great example i was speaking to a lady uh, who works uh who works for unhcr in egypt and she was saying how yeah you know these kind of organizations pride themselves on the amount of women they have working for these organizations but actually what you see is that you know at a lower level positions you have a lot of women right but once you get to the top, all of a sudden the director's a man. And so, yes, there is a there is diversity in that you have lots of women, 
But once you get to that, those decision-making positions, right, it's overwhelmingly male-dominated. And that's, that's really the challenge, not so much the quantity of diversity, if you will. I was reading um, a Guardian piece the other day that was saying that, you know, there are many, many NGOs in Europe that work um, with uh, situations in Africa. And the majority, the, the vast majority of people working for these organizations aren't even from those communities, right? They're, they're mainly people who have a degree, right, from a European university, um, mainly middle class, and some of them have never really experienced what it's like to have hardship. So, yes, they're, they're creating programs to, you know, help people in, in the case in some African countries. Um, but if there's somebody who actually comes from these communities, they would be able to sort of add an input that these people would not be able to because they're not from these communities, you know. And that's a level of representation that I think is really, really important. Two weeks ago, I went to a conference um, in London. It was about Brexit and opportunities for African investment. And this was um, a conference that was organized by Morgan Stanley. So it was in Canary Wolf. And it was just there, you know, people attending there, they, they came from KPMG, from Goldman Sachs, and yada, yada, yada. I was invited by a friend who works for KPMG. And I was amazed. I, I, was, I said to her, I've never seen so many African people at an event about Africa. It was like, 80% African. And the, the panel, uh, there were seven people, five were Africans. If this were an event, but this were not a banking event, but it was the same thing, but from the NGO perspective, you would not see this many Africans because there's hardly any representation. And it was amazing just speaking to, speaking to people. And these aren't people, some of them are people who have just started working in, in the industry. A lot of them were senior people, CFOs, CEOs. And I was thinking, wow, this is incredible. Why don't I see this in the NGO community? Why do you think that is? I, I honestly think there's an issue of racism. <laughs> it's it's funny people assume that because they work in the NGO sector, they can't therefore cannot be racist. But it's it's wrong, and it's it's sometimes it's subconscious, right? So like, I, there are a lot of people I know who are amazing people, and have been trying desperately to get in the NGO sector, and they're just not being hired. If you look at every single study, you can it shows you that if you're a person of color, you're less likely to get called in for an interview than if you're if you're a white person. Um, and it's not just with one sector; it's all sectors. And then, of course, the fact that you know, for a lot of positions, it's it's easier if you've done an unpaid internship, which a lot of people can't afford, of course, uh, and that disproportionately affects people of color. And then you have this gatekeeping issue: disproportionately, people of color don't do don't go on to do uh, postgraduate degrees. And the result is there are less people <laughs> from these communities who are who are represented in, in the NGO sector. And this is why I say that the NGO sector for me is sort of like a middle class club because the people who are able to afford to do unpaid internships, take a year out and go to Madagascar and work there as a project coordinator, even though it's not paid. And then from these kind of uh, engagements that do do, they then get positions. And this excludes a lot of people who, you know, are coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds. But I also think that, especially for people coming from the communities, like in London, for example, working in the NGO sector is not like a dream for people. You know, when you grow up, you're told that you to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you know, like no one really says work in the NGO sector. lack of diversity in the nonprofit sector is a complex issue, and underrepresented groups face a lot of barriers. This is despite the clear benefits that diverse teams bring to all businesses, including NGOs, in terms of experience, perspectives, approaches to problem solving and innovation capacity. 
Tola believes that a good place to start dismantling the existing barriers to diversity is through information and progressive leadership. Information, because often people from non-white middle-class backgrounds simply don't know about the career options and job opportunities in the nonprofit sector. At the same time, progressive, open-minded leaders can take concerted action at the decision-making levels of nonprofit organizations to hire and invest in more diverse teams. In fact, it was that type of leadership on part of one of Tola's former managers that allowed him to go ahead and co-found Refugees Welcome Portugal. He was living and working in Portugal when Refugees Welcome chapters started springing up all across Europe, and he knew that he had to act as well. So the origin was just seeing how terrible the conditions were, housing conditions for refugees in Portugal. I mean, we're talking you know, potentially four people in a studio or things like that. Really, really bad conditions. And you know, these are refugees who are like, a lot of them, before they arrived they probably were middle class you know had decent place decent positions and stuff like that all of a sudden they like live in like this you know and they want to be able to uh, integrate get a job like live properly but how can they do it when they're stuck in that sort of spiral and so but back then there wasn't really a big institution or there wasn't really a push for improving housing so we decided hey why don't we set up refugees welcome in portugal and at that, at that period refugees welcome germany had already been set up uh, and i thought, well, let's let's contact these guys and see if we can do something together. And then through that, Refugees Welcome Portugal was born. And, um, you know, it's, it's doing great work. And I mean, now, since I'm obviously I left Portugal and now I'm in the UK, I do work more at an international level. So basically helping other projects, coordinating things, uh, organizing meetings, sort of doing stakeholder relations between us and other, other, other stakeholders. And also what's good is that now I think there is a focus now on integration. So, you know, the last couple of years in the EU, it was more about emergency response, going to the hotspots, frontline states, helping them out. But it's been two years, right, since this happened. So I think now there's more of a focus on, okay, they've been here for two years and they're going to be here for another, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. How do we integrate them? And so that's something that we can get involved in, especially from the perspective of, of, of um, housing, um, because we don't want refugees to end up in mass accommodation. For me, I, I think that an amazing way to, to really integrate into a society is where you're, in, in the case of Refugees Welcome, when you're living with people from that country. Because what you don't want is a situation where um, you know, refugees live in one particular place and they just, they don't really mix at all with the locals. And so that's what we, we try to change at Refugees Welcome. And so far it's, it's been going quite well. We've managed to match more than a thousand people, 1,100 people. Uh, and we're now in well 14 countries and we have now we've just launched two new chapters in Hungary and in Denmark um, so yeah that's pretty much how it started and how it's working at the moment what's been the most challenging part about starting the whole process so setting up different chapters getting people involved etc we're a volunteer based organization so there's always the aspect of volunteer management which can be challenging and it's, it's just, I guess, you realize that people are so passionate, but you spend a lot of time doing volunteer management, which sometimes can be quite frustrating. Where it's like, you know, you say, hey, we have a meeting and two people might not show up, but not say that they're going to show up. And it's like, OK, why didn't you show up? And at some point you're like, I'm a volunteer as well. Do I have the time to be chasing after people? You know what I mean? So there is that. Um, and with the volunteers who do do stuff, they do amazing stuff. So you have volunteers who, who just, you know, are, are really sort of passionate and resourceful, creative. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, but it can be challenging, as I said, if, if you have volunteers who, who you're not able to harness, I guess, in, in terms of what they can do. Another one really is stakeholder relationship. I mean, NGOs are fighting for funding opportunities. And if they sniff one, it's just like wolfing that down. 
and sometimes they're not the best when it comes to partnerships, especially in a place like Portugal, where funding is very, very limited. So um, that's that's also a, a challenge as well. And I guess just the fluidity of the whole situation regarding refugees, because things can change overnight. Like we might decide, hey, we're going to launch a campaign to get more hosts. And then the day before the campaign, there's a terrorist attack. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, how to respond to this? Um, so just things, things like that. And this, these are things you can't predict. And it's just finding a way just, again, to be creative and to be flexible enough that you can sort of um, find a way to tackle that. And that's the thing about these kind of organizations, especially grassroots organizations. It's just a level of flexibility that you need to work with. Otherwise, it's just not going to work, you know? And what's been your favorite part about working with Refugees Welcome? I would definitely say just seeing refugees do well. One one guy I remember, like he, I, I met him because he was just waiting waiting for a bus. He was a refugee just who just arrived, waiting waiting for a bus. And then a friend of mine was like, "Hey, you look, is everything okay? Just like, you know, everything okay? You okay?" He's like, "Yeah, well, I just arrived. I'm cry for asylum. Don't even know what I'm doing. He's from Ukraine." That was uh, two and a half years ago, and uh, yeah, he didn't again. He didn't have anything, right? So we managed to house him. And the way it works is that normally it's a minimum of three months. And it should be free. And after the three-month period, there's a meeting to discuss, like, okay, can you pay, for example? If not, maybe you can extend it, for example, that kind of stuff. And within the three months, he got a job. Then when we had our review, he was like, oh, I can pay the rent, no worries. You know, and now, you know, he's speaking Portuguese. He has a Portuguese girlfriend, you know, he's like traveling, you know, and everything is fine. You know, and, and for me, that's like, wow, that's, that's what I want to see. You know, a guy can, can come in, have nothing. But then just because he has that little push and there are people who are there to support him, a couple of years later, he's he's fine. And that's the kind of thing that I really enjoy. These kind of stories, these personal stories that, that you you know that you've helped towards. Like you've helped to create the story. And, and I think that things like that are really satisfying. Another thing as well is just seeing volunteers. Like a lot of people in Europe have like, they are passionate. They really want to find a way to help. And If you're able to harness that, I think that's amazing, right? These people just come with the, with the ideas and you don't want to you don't want to clip their wings. You want to let them grow, right? Because you're like, wow, this person's really passionate. Boom, you know, and it's created a project and it's a successful project. So uh, I find I find things like that really, really inspiring as well. For me, even, even if I've been in that process, it's always nice to see new people who are taking an idea and turning it into something that is sort of tangible and that helps people. Tola's passion for advancing refugees' rights is clearly reflected in everything he does, so it wasn't a surprise to me to hear that while studying for his Master's in Human Rights at the University of Essex, he ran a successful campaign to establish a scholarship program for refugee students. Yeah, so when I arrived at Essex, I, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of um, refugees who wanted to study, but they didn't have the capacity to study, they just didn't have the money. And I realized that the university doesn't really have, or didn't then, have any sort of um, financial assistance for these, for these refugees. So what I did was I did some research to find out, okay, so what has happened already? And what I found was that the year prior to, to me arriving, um, I there was already a campaign to try to get university to um, to do scholarships, and it didn't work. And this was uh, a campaign that was led by the former uh, student union president. They went to Calais, for example. They did a lot of stuff, but then they tried to really get university on board. So I thought, okay, let me see what did it really work and see if I can do something different. And I guess my my main thing was that 
they were really sort of out there. Like they were doing campaigns, protests, like you've got to help us because, you know, University of Essex is a human rights university. You must have refugees. And I thought, you know what, let me try something different. Let me take take a more um, quicker an approach, which is more about like silent diplomacy. Right. So not necessarily the, that big campaign in, in your face kind of thing, but more like this, the, the backdoor meetings. Um, of course, what helped was that I was working with four other students uh, to, to, to get this done. And we got some academics on board. And through these academics, we were able to secure meetings with like deans and things like that. And that made things a lot easier because it's easy to send an email to like, I don't know, somebody, an admin assistant in, in, a, in the faculty. But then the emails just end up being forwarded. It's much easier just to go directly to the person who's able to make the decision, right? And it, but it took a long time. It took a year. And because when we, when we started to push for the scholarship, the university had already closed their budget. And so it was a bit more difficult. Um, but yeah, we just lobbied the, the steering committee, which is the highest committee uh, at Essex. Uh, we, I met a couple of pro vice chancellors. Uh, so at the end of the campaign, like when we started, we were just four people. At the end of the campaign, we had three academics on board, two staff members, two departments, a former pro vice chancellor as well. We had the two local refugee organizations, the local school as well involved. So it was really, really cool. And so the university, even though they had closed their budget, they somehow found £30,000 to give free scholarships, so £10,000 each to refugees. Uh, so that was really, really impressive. And um, I remember the, the day that we, I got wind of it, that this would happen. Uh, and I was like, okay, I can't say anything because it's not confirmed, right? And then when it was confirmed, I just put it like, it's done, finally. And this, you could see when we, when we met the refugees the next day, they were like, oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and the, the, the ones we that, that came to us who couldn't study, are now studying. Um, two, two of them are doing masters, and one is doing a, um, a bachelor. And within that, they, they're receiving technical support in terms of like English classes and things like that. And so it's great now because for them, it's like we've been here for two two years. We want to be part of the community, but we need to study, so we have that English qualification. And now they're working towards it, and now it's a possibility. And it goes back to what I said about for me, it's about creating opportunity. These people want to be able to study, but they can't. But now with the scholarship. They have the opportunity to study. And, and that's something that, that, that I want to see more and more. This amazing victory was sweetened by Colchester becoming a city of sanctuary the same week that the University of Essex agreed to establish the Refugee Scholarship Programme. Cities of sanctuary in the UK accept refugee families for a settlement and help them rebuild their lives and settle into their new communities. Tola played a role in this campaign as well, so for him, it felt like a double victory. That week was amazing. Like first we had the university implementing scholarships for refugees, then you had a couple of days later the city becoming a city of sanctuary. So that was a really, really good week. It made me feel really, really good. And the fact that I was part of it was even better because it's something like a story I can tell. But the most important thing is to see that even a city like Colchester, in a region like Essex that's very, very conservative, you know, you can change minds and hearts as well. And that's the most important thing. I think it gives hope for people who feel like maybe they can't do anything. I wrote a blog about this as well. And what I wanted to emphasize was that, you know, life isn't easy, obviously, but if you work hard at something, it, it might be possible to change stuff, you know. And even if you're a student, you know, and you want to change a policy at the university and you feel that, you know, it's it's such, it's such a behemoth of an organization. How can I navigate this? How can I do this? It's too bureaucratic. Like, it is possible. You just got to keep chipping away. And even in a city like Essex, a, a city like uh, Colchester that is quite conservative, leaning anyway, it is possible to even do something like to to convince the council to accept more refugees, right? It is possible, but it, it does take a bit of work and it also takes 
making sure that you have good people around you, people who you can work with, uh, people who you can, you know, in case of trying times that people are there to support you. And I think once you have that, then a lot of things you can achieve. What do you think was behind the success of these campaigns? Well, in the case of the university, I think it, we were successful because we lobbied not on one front, but on several fronts. Um, everybody expressed interest in doing it, but it was more like, how do we do it, right? So I think it's always important when you're negotiating anyway, you always have to talk, you, have to, you always have to think about from the perspective of the person you're negotiating with, right? So not like in the case of Essex, going to Essex University and saying, you must offer scholarships because you must do it. Your university, this is a human rights university, you must do it. No, you must be like, hmm, how are they thinking? They're probably thinking, but how is this in our interest, budget-wise, right? Because everything has a cost. If the university is going to spend 30000 on a scholarship, that means that 30000 is going from somewhere. So it's, it's, it's framing the, 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 the project in a way that the university can understand. Like they understand that you understand them. You know what I mean? In the case of City of Sanctuary, um, Colchester had already accepted 12 families. And I think they saw from the 12 families that actually things were working well. There's, there were no problems with this family. So why don't we accept more people? This is a campaign regarding the city of Sanctuary that lasted for several years. And they were seeing the work that uh, that was done in Colchester to help refugees. Um, actually, the, the head of one of the charities, Refugee Action Colchester, she won Essex Volunteer of the Year. So they could see the work that was being done, the sort of passion that people had, the, the time people were investing. And they thought, okay, we should probably support this by elevating our status to a new level. And the fact that it was a Lib Dem Labour coalition kind of helped, I would say. (laughs) I always ask my guests this question. So what does success mean to you? And do you consider yourself successful? So success means, well, the NGO community actually being diverse. Um, Um, it means it means opportunities being given to refugees. It means uh, and, and also people uh, so diaspora organisations. So it means, for example, that a university can implement scholarships for refugees. It means that people can accept that a refugee is a refugee and not like doesn't speak on, on behalf of like the whole population. If if a refugee does a terrorist attack, it doesn't mean that one million refugees are all terrorists. You know, that level of discourse. It means that there is dialogue between groups that sort of helps the integration argument move forward. That's what success is for me. And that's quite abstract, but like it's, it's something that should be abstract there is, because it's something that can't really be defined. Whether I am successful, I think that uh, I wouldn't say, I would say that I'm successful in that I have started a process, but it's still, there's still a ways to go. I mean, just doing the scholarship thing is, is one thing, but it's not the only thing. I mean, if you take that the scholarship thing, for example, yeah, it's great, we have a scholarship, until you consider the fact that, oh, well, one of the refugees has two children, that's daycare cost. who's going to pay for that, right? Or, for example, she may have failed an English test, and that means she needs 6.5 IELTS to start studying, oh, but she got six, so she has to do a precessional course, which costs £2,000, who's going to pay for that? You know, there are so many other things that people like it's very, very easy to get carried away. A lot of NGOs as well, they focus on stories, right? That's the idea. They, they tell stories. And I think this is a new form of communication within the NGO sector where they'll get one refugee family that's doing really well and say, wow, this is an example of great stuff that's happening, which is a success in, in, its, in, in a way. But then what about the other people who haven't done well? So I think it's, 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 mindful, it's, it's important to be mindful of the process that has been started in terms of, yes, there are things that are working. 
But also, there are a lot of there, there's still a way to go. There's still a way to go before you have a situation where people feel that they are they have the opportunity to be what they can, they would like to be. And in the case of diversity, there is a diverse NGO sector. What do you think makes your life meaningful? Like, what gets you up in the morning? Um, sleeping well. <laughs> um, not once to miss planes and 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 you know, like I didn't want to miss this train to the Eurostar train to to, to Brussels. No, um, no. For me, it's just just be me. I mean, we live in this world, you know. We gotta do some stuff. That's it. Like, I don't. I'm not that kind of philosophical person. That's like, I, you know, I, what gets me up is helping refugees. Like. It's it's not <laughs> what gets me up is getting me getting up. Um, it's it's me just wanting to 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 do what I can as as I'm here. Like, well, what's what's definitely a certainty is that we're gonna die at some point, right? And when that happens, nobody knows. And so it's it's what can I when I die? Like, what I, I can say that I've done stuff and I've done my little bit to improve the opportunities for people. Because you see a lot of nonsense happening, unfortunately. And yeah, it's just finding a way to to improve that. And that's that's what keeps me going. What advice would you give to young people who maybe have an idea of how to improve things in their community, or maybe want to get a job in the nonprofit sector? What would you tell them? Definitely contact organizations that are already like maybe not the big established organizations because they, they won't have, they will never have time for you. Um, but maybe the sort of smaller or medium-sized organizations. Just just talk to the founders. Like, how did you guys? How did you start this? You know, I think it's really important to speak to people and get that experience. You know, like for me, what helped me a lot was that, that I I helped people to, to start a startup, a tech startup, and that helped me just understand the whole process of starting something. And I think that it's really important to have that because what you what you realize is that you cannot, you're not Superman, yeah, or Superwoman. You can't do everything by yourself. You need people around you. You need the right kind of people around you who have that experience, who are able to give you the small tips here and there. Uh, so I think it's important to, if, if it's not a mentor, just flag down any like organization and that is that will have the time for you, not so not big organizations, and and speak to the, the founder or somebody who's seen you and just ask them like, is it? Can we have a coffee? Just you can tell me like how you how you started this, you know, and also find out like what is what's what is it that you want to achieve as well, and let that let that be a drive because there are going to be times like when you start a company, it's always like this, right? There are ups and downs, you know. The ups are always nice, but when you're in your down period, you want to be able to have something that drives you, right? And I guess, so if you know exactly what you want to achieve, that really helps. And trying to be organized, like, if you have something in your mind, write it down. Write it down, write it down, write it down. So that, because, you know, your mind changes stuff all the time. Um, if it's written down, then you have, and you can use that to mold something that's clear and concise. Um, but I'll definitely say the most important thing is having people around you who can give you tips, who can push you, Like so, what those moments where you're like, um, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Your your partner or your friend or something like can be like, nope, get up, like, whoosh, you know, keep going, keep going, because they see the potential in what you want to do. Thank you for listening to Meaningful, and thanks to Tolo for sharing his story with me. Since we spoke for this recording, he's actually scored another achievement and got a job at the United Nations Refugee Agency. Congratulations, Tola!
can read more about Tola's work, as well as some interesting studies and representation in the nonprofit sector, in the show notes on my website at sofiadoeswords, that's sofiadoeswords.com slash meaningful. And if you like this episode, make sure to rate and review Meaningful on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to subscribe to get all the future episodes straight to your device. Until next week.